So Israel is the people of God. And they are delivered from abusive slavery, feeling the sting of the whip on their back, the hot sun, short little lunch breaks, none of these labor union breaks throughout the day, just maybe a little tiny lunch break, working overtime without extra pay, no holidays. They are being put to slave labor, building things for someone else, for Pharaoh. God mercifully, powerfully rescues them from the situation where they are not in charge of their own actions and they are told what to do and they don't have the freedom to have their own dreams and visions. And even at a certain point, they were told how many babies they can have and what gender. Their lives were manipulated and controlled. But then God delivers them from that powerfully and mercifully. And they're set on this course, this course that takes them to a land that he's promised them that would be fruitful and abundant, the promised land, where they would get to establish their own homes, their own fields, work their own lives, and live as they feel led by God. Egypt was bad. The promised land is good. But what is the middle And so we find ourselves tonight, if you follow Jesus and he is your savior, you are somewhere out of Egypt and maybe in the promised land, maybe on your way there. The promised land is what happens when we allow God to fill our lives to the fullest. We allow him to be our king and to rule us. This middle period is where a lot of us spend a lot of our lives And we sometimes go into the promised land. We sometimes dip back into the wilderness. The the, the wilderness is where, yes, you are out of Egypt and this bondage of selfishness and sin, it's, it's, it's been broken and you're realizing there's a new path and I'm starting to look more and more like God and Jesus but at the same time, though, though you are out of Egypt, th- those things of Egypt, those things of selfishness and blindness and sin, they're still in your heart to a degree. So you're kind of living in both ways. Sometimes you're a slave and then sometimes you're free. And you're learning how to walk. That's what the wilderness is. And that is where we all are to one degree or another. We're learning in Exodus how to walk through the wilderness. So we saw that God powerfully rescues us. And then he takes us through the Red Sea, which is what Christians practice in baptism. It says, we have left Egypt. We're now following Christ on our way to the promised land. And last week, we looked at how they sang in victory after they came on the other side of the Red Sea. Singing is one of the most crucial steps we need in this wilderness experience. Singing will get Egypt out of us through song. And now we come tonight to something very different than they're experiencing in singing. Tonight we can relate to this vicious cycle life can have. You know, there's those moments where you say, ooh, ah, and everything God's doing just seems to be clicking with your life. It's really easy to be a Christian. And it's really easy to tell people how good God is. You just saw the Red Sea close over your enemies and you're liberated and you feel that power of liberation. And then somewhere along the way, oh, no. That feeling, that warm, fuzzy feeling kind of wears off. And it's your boss who's a major pain in your side. Or it's the flat tire when you were just trying to get to church. 
or it's the kids whom you thought you were on a nice little getaway, a date night, and you had a babysitter and thought everything, you come back and find out that there is <laughs> uh, dinner exploded in the kitchen. Or you come home and you find out that someone's leaving you. Or you find out your kids did something unbelievable. You thought you knew your kids. You thought you are on top of that. And now you feel ashamed and like a failure as a parent. Or suddenly, just like God doesn't speak anymore. And you try to sing at church and it just seems like the song will not get out of your throat. We hit these cycles. And the, the, we don't always stay there. Sometimes then all of a sudden it's like, yay, wow, amazing. God answered a prayer. We have these ooh and ah moments and then these oh no moments. Israel crosses, well, Israel is delivered from slavery in Egypt. That was an oh no, God, how'd you get us in this mess? Well, God delivers them. Ooh, ah, oh no, the Egyptians are coming for us after all. Moses, why did you lead us here to kill us? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? And then God sends the wind and parts the Red Sea. Ooh, ah. And they go through and the sea closes on the Egyptians and they're singing hallelujahs in chapter 15 of Exodus. Ooh, ah. And tonight, guess what happens? Oh, no. So these cycles are normal. They are normal. But the problem with them is that we often don't think of them as normal. And when we go from the ooh-ah to the oh-no, we begin to think the whole world is caving in and the apocalypse is happening before Jesus came back and somehow God is not in control of the universe. And we really start to see things that way. We get into apocalyptic mode and we get very, we lose control. We feel like we lose control. We feel like there's no more comfort. We feel like nobody gives us credit for anything anymore. And we have no more certainty about life, about the goodness of God. If you, if for you losing certainty, losing control, losing comfort, and losing credit causes you to complain, then you may suffer from a serious condition known as Centeritis. Let me say that again. If losing control, if losing certainty, if losing comfort, if losing any sort of credit and applause from people causes you to go into complain mode, then you probably suffer from a serious condition called centeritis. Centeritis is what happens when the amazing ooh and ah God who works powerfully in our midst is relocated from the center of our lives because for some reason we don't think he's in control anymore. Things are not going the way we wanted him to have them go. And actually what happens is we put ourselves there. If I began saying, but it was supposed to go like this, God, how dare you? I put myself in the center. And if when I feel uncertainty and I feel a loss of control and I'm no longer getting credit and I'm, I don't have my creature comforts anymore and I begin to complain, the voice of complaint is the result of me being in the center and God pushed somewhere over here. When God's in the center, we are like the Israelites singing like last week's passage. God was clearly in the center of their view. But when we begin to complain, it's very obvious Who's not in the center and who is? Complaining is the song of me being in the center, centeritis. But praise and singing is the song of God being in the center. Well, before we even left last week's passage, we didn't read it because I saved it for this week. 
So if you guys will look at uh, just before 16, look at 15, verse 22. That Moses made Israel, they just finished singing. Miriam just finished leading the women into dancing with the tambourine. They're celebrating God's victory over Egypt. And then, 22, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, we can't really relate to that in America. We have water everywhere. And we have water bottles. People open, take a sip, and leave them out around. We throw away more water than we drink, it feels like. Um, So I want you to read that like you were three days at this intensive meeting with people that kind of bother you, and there was no coffee. (laughs) Okay, that might be more what they're feeling. When they came to Mara, Mara, by the way, is a Hebrew word which means bitter. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah. Because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. It was bitter, therefore it was named bitter. And the people, there it is, here's the word, they grumbled, or New King James, they complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And then Moses finds a way. God shows them a tree and he throws it in, and the water becomes sweet, and then they're happy. Not for long. So now we're in our passage, chapter 16. Verse 1, I want you guys to count the many times you see the word complaint, complain, or grumble, depending on your translation. It's going to be one of those words. There might be another one out there, but you get the idea. Count those words. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. So Sinai is where they're going to get the law of God. So they're somewhere between Egypt and Sinai where they get the law. And Sinai was just going to be a stopping point before they get to the promised land. So they're maybe, what, a quarter of the way through their journey is the idea. Uh, It was on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they're, you know, a couple months into their journey, quarter of the way through. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Wait, seriously? It's only two months ago. You guys were being whipped by Egyptians. And now like, if only we had been left there to die. And they're thinking because there were chain restaurants there. And, and Moses is th- he's probably, are you guys serious? You didn't have money to go there. But it was there, this wilderness. You brought us out here to die. There's nothing to eat. And sometimes you feel that way when God's leading your life. You're, you're like, where am I now? Why have you brought me here, God? There's absolute, you brought me here to suffer. And we begin to question the goodness of God. And we have anger towards the goodness of God, the so-called goodness of God. Because he's not doing what we want him to do. This is all the condition of center-itis. Verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, the test is not really so much see if they, you know, like, let's see how dumb you guys are. Sometimes when we go to school, we think of tests as like a, a you know, dumb status moment. Um, all it is trying to do is see where are they? 
That's what tests do. They show you where you are so you can either improve or, well, keep improving either way. And God is testing them so that they know where they are. Okay? On the sixth day, verse 5, when they prepare what they bring in, God's talking. So on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So the bread, they must gather twice as much on the sixth day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling and complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble and complain against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling and complaining that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling, your complaining is not against us, but against the I am who I am, the Lord, Yahweh. Your grumbling is not against us. It's against him. So I want you guys to think about that. Sometimes I just want to say that so badly to people. I'm just complaining. You're complaining against God. And later in the story of the wilderness, he's going to send serpents to deal with that. Sometimes I just wish I had that button. (laughs) Pastor Brandon. Oh, never mind. Okay. That's what I thought. You guys are great. It's more, uh, never mind. It's the uh, back row over there that, no. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. So verse 9. Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling and complaining. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling, the complaining of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So that's the section where we see a lot of this grumbling and this complaining. And you should have seen it about eight times. It's very clear what's going on here. And what the problem is, is that we have a complaining, grumbling bunch of people who, by the way, just a chapter ago, were singing and shouting and dancing about the victory of God. Horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. This is what you have done for us. We're looking forward to where you're taking us. Everything, the past, present, and future of God's work, they were celebrating. And all of a sudden, you brought us out here to die. There's nothing to eat. And listen, we can't take, we can't underestimate the juxtaposition here, the, the putting together of these two themes. That they go from celebrating, ooh and ah, to complaining and grumbling. Oh no. And that if we are not celebrating and praising God, then we will be grumbling and complaining against God. That these are opposites. That if he's not in the center and we're in the center, then that's what's going to come out of our mouths. And that's where the attitude of our hearts is going to be. So the solution we see is that God says he's going to rain down bread from heaven and that they are to go gather every day. He's doing this to test them. So I want you now to see the sort of some more detail about how they're to go gather it. And 
So in verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Now that in Hebrew is manna, which is where we get the word manna. It literally, when you say manna, you're saying, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses is probably like, well, he told you what it was. Bread's going to rain down from that. Did you not believe him? And Moses said to them, much more patiently, it is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. So there it is, fine little particles on the ground, little like, like fine like dust, or like frost it says, so kind of like dust, just little white stuff all over. He says, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. <laughs> can you see the Israelites right now? So they're slaves. They're used to being rationed stuff. Now they're being told, you have an all-you-can-eat buffet. What, Moses? What, Moses? So... And they went from this holy grumbling, you're going to kill us, to this all-you-can-eat buffet. You shall take, you shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And an omer is about two liters. Think of like a two-liter soda bottle, just filling that up. So um, each of you shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Verse 17. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. How about that? You could go as much as you want. Some people gathered, you know, a little bit. Some gathered a lot. But all of them were sufficiently and equally satisfied. There was no waste and no lack. It met their needs perfectly. Sometimes we're in the wilderness and we complain and we think that it's death and that things can't get worse. And we expect these miraculous things to happen. And we're missing actually right there at our feet, God's provision. It just was so easy to miss because it looked like dust. It looked like frost. And we were expecting some climatic thing. And God is simply saying, you know what? Right now, I'm giving you just enough. Don't expect to be bloated, but don't expect to starve either. I'm going to give you just enough to get to the next place in the wilderness. And Moses said to them, 19, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But of course, they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stink, and Moses was angry with them. Much the same way you might be angry with the junior higher for not putting on deodorant. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now on the sixth day, 22, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath unto Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. 
And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So there is the pattern of God wanting them to work six days and then the rest on the seventh. He would provide for their rest. Sometimes we don't rest because we don't trust that God will provide for us while we're resting. We think that if we don't stop working and slaving, then the universe will stop working and the whole world will crumble apart. Sometimes we have to rest just to learn that you are not God and the universe keeps working and the people around you don't die. Sometimes we just have to learn to rest. And Israel had a hard time with that because some of them refused to do it. And God gets angry in verses 27 to 30. So then they learned to rest. And then in verse 31, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. So maybe like graham crackers, maybe. It wasn't bad, in other words. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Uh, So that he commands, take a little bit of it and store it for future generations to see that God has always been faithful to them. And verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. So once they got to the promised land, no more need for manna. This manna was to sustain them through the wilderness. It was a lesson. Remember, God said, I wanted to test them. I wanted to see what's in their heart. So I'm giving them this manna to see if they will obey me or not. And so this is baby food until they get to the real meat and potatoes or milk and honey of the promised land. So sometimes God will give you just enough to see if you trust him. And I believe that that's one of the things, that is one of the things that stuck out to me as I'm reading this passage. The phrase daily dependence kept coming to me. That what God was orchestrating here with Israel was a daily dependence on him. They could not go out there one day and say, all right, hi, Bob. Yeah, we got two weeks worth here. Hey, back the truck up. Come on. Uh, they, They were not doing that. And yet that's sometimes how we try to live in the wilderness. We try to just like stockpile with God on Sunday. Some of you are on your second service right now. That's wonderful. But you can't just say, well, I'm good for the week because I've done church twice today. You can't do that. Because God is not about, hey, um, I just need you to work 40 hours with me and then you'll get paid what you're due. I don't care when, just do 40 hours. God isn't like that. God wants a daily dependence because he's testing to see what's in our hearts. And he's testing to see if we depend upon him. Why? Why does he want us to daily depend upon him? Because he knows that if we don't, then centuritis sets in very quickly. If I stockpile God on Sundays and go about my business on Monday through Saturday, I am like the hallelujah chorus on Sunday, and I'm grumbling and complaining for the next six. It's the act of having to go to Jesus each and every day and say, I know I prayed about this person who really rubs my shoulders the wrong way. I know I prayed about him yesterday and the day before, but I also know that that doesn't cover today. So Jesus, I need you today. I need your patience and your love and your empathy today to work alongside this person. We get in trouble. We stink. Worms breed into our lives when we don't do that every day. And so he's calling Israel to this daily dependence. Every morning's a new day. In other words, every morning is a fresh opportunity for me to become a psychopath and kill people. 
It really is. That's why God says, hey, today, come, come meet with me in the morning. Start your day off with me daily. It's just a prayer. It's just a scripture reading. It's a devotional booklet a lot of people like to read. Um, It's something more intensive for you. I don't know what it is. But what Jesus wants, us walking with him every day, and he gives us just enough. You're just satisfied. Not too much, not too little. Daily dependence. There was a time when Jesus, in the Gospel of John, in fact, go to John 6, why don't you? John chapter 6. Jesus sees the multitudes. They're in the, guess where? The wilderness. He's teaching them. Okay, right now, you should be going, connection. Yes, the gospel writers know the Old Testament very well. Jesus is teaching people in the wilderness. There's no food. They're hungry. It doesn't say they complain and grumble, though. But he does provide for them. He multiplies the loaves and the fish for them. Well, then they begin to talk to him about it. Whoa, dude. John 6. Who are you? Let's talk about this a little bit. Not your average person just kind of multiplies food for people in the wilderness. This, this kind of reminds us of Moses and Yahweh giving Israelites bread in the wilderness. So let's talk about this. You're not just some ordinary rabbi, are you? Teacher, in other words. So they talk about it. So John chapter 6, verse uh, 30. John six thirty. So they, this is the people that see Jesus multiply this food for the crowds. They come to him and they say, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? We want to know that you're trustworthy, that we should follow you. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, okay, you're reminding us of that story, Jesus, but we need proof that you are something special because our forefathers in the past, God provided manna for them. What are you going to do for us? Are you going to keep doing this for us on a daily basis? Because if you keep making food for us, wow. We won't have to worry about Rome taxing us anymore. And maybe we could have enough to start a revolution. They're thinking revolutionary political kingship here. A king who can multiply bread for the masses? So Jesus answers, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives Now, my father gave. Moses didn't give it to you back then. My father gives it to you now. He gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You know, Jesus is talking about himself. So as manna came down daily for Israel, Jesus is now saying, yo, I have come down. And I will be here on a daily basis for the sustenance of your life. Now, life is not Egypt. You might be breathing and your heart might be beating, but that's not living. And life is, well, it's kind of happening in the wilderness. No, life is promised land where you're thriving. Jesus is saying, I have come to give you life. So 34, they said to him, sir, 
Give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here we go. As we walk through the wilderness of this world, Jesus is saying, essentially, I am that manna. I am that bread. Keep coming to me daily dependence, and you will not hunger, and you will not thirst, and you will finally experience promised land life. But I say to you, 36, I say to you who have seen me and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, not centeritis, but the will of him who sent me. I keep the Father in the center. 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, Jesus, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do you know that you believe Jesus is the Son of God? How do you know that you believe he will raise you up? I gave a manna daily to test them. You know if you have faith, you know that you believe if you are exercising daily dependence. But guess what happens? This is so good. It's like you can't make this up. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled. (laughs) They grumbled about him. Wow, this sounds familiar. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that he has come down from heaven? Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And he keeps on talking about how I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you life. But here's the initial response is, no, this can't be possible. These are people in the wilderness. And then one more time in verse 60, so he goes on to say, um, you know what? We, we have to read it then. Verse 52, actually. Verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, it's my body that is the bread that you're going to eat. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Okay, okay. So we've gone from manna now to what? Yeah, 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So even Jesus says, I have daily dependence on him. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread. So now he's summarizing it. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers, the Israelites, ate in the wilderness and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And now verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus said, or Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were there it is again, grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And then many of them leave. And then Jesus has to turn to his 12, say, are you guys going to go too? And Peter says, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? 
and they stick with him. Daily dependence is rare. Because people are like, you know what? We're too busy for that. This is a hard saying. How can we do this? How can we come to Jesus every day? Of course, when he's talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, he's referring to the fact that I am going to die on the cross and my flesh will be torn and my blood will be spilled for the life of the world. I'm not just bread that's come down to be some sort of religious icon that you can kind of pray to and tap into some inner power and then have everything be happy forever. I'm actually coming to give myself to you so that when Israel's making that manna, it's God giving himself to them. And Jesus keeps saying, I'm giving myself to you. You have to receive. This isn't just some religious icon, right? I'm just going to go and pay homage. No, there's actually a transaction that's happening. We're taking into us the life of God himself. And when you do so, centeritis cannot stand a chance as the life of God comes in. Centeritis is our problem. It causes complaining. It happens sometimes when life gets down and we're not really sure what's next and we're in the middle of the wilderness and we feel hungry and neglected. Centeritis is the problem. What we're seeing Jesus propose is that the solution, the subscription, if you will, is the cross. That if we become cross-centered people, the cross in which Jesus died, the cross in which he gave himself we will cure centeritis. The cross works like gravity. It becomes the very center of the universe. That even creation reacts to the death of Jesus as we read in the Gospels that the earth shakes and the sun fails to shine. It goes dark for three hours as he's on the cross. Creation itself is reacting because this has become the center icon, the center piece, the center moment, the center action of sacrifice where the Son of God is dying on the cross. This changes everything. And now it becomes this magnet, this gravity that's pulling. If we look, if we're willing to be humbled, if we're willing to see, if we're willing to keep the sacrifice and love of Christ in the middle of our lives, it will become this, this huge gravitational force that pulls us into orbit around the life of God. But what Centeritis does, of course, is that it moves the cross out of that and it says, nope, ego, myself. The self that wants to succeed. The self that wants to make itself something. The self that actually believes it's God in some way. And when we have that in the center, it too is an incredible force of gravity. But it is now beginning to pull the people around us and the things around us into orbit around us. Because we like control. We like comfort. We like credit. We like certainty. And of course, if I can keep the universe spinning around me, I have all of those things and I can forever live in an ooh-ah moment. And guess what the ooh and ah is about? So infatuated with myself. And that's when we get the feelings of entitlement. Of course, we're supposed to get what we want. And when we don't, that's when we complain and grumble because 
it's hinting that you're losing control. You're no longer comfortable. You no longer have certainty. You're not getting all the credit that you want the universe to pour toward you. So what is the gravity in your life? Is it the cross where we see someone who's giving out himself or is it your ego, which is trying to bring all things to the self? Paul puts it so succinctly in Genesis, uh, Galatians 2 verse 20. And you can flip there, but most of you know it. But if you don't, you need to find Galatians 2 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That's the ego. That's no longer controlling my life. My ego is no longer the one living. But Christ lives in me. In other words, I've been crucified with Christ. I visit the cross on a daily basis. I'm dependent upon his sacrifice on a daily basis. Therefore, I am not the center of my universe. I am not the gravitational pole. I don't have centeritis, but I've put Christ in the center. And now I'm living by his life outward through me. So again, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith or by daily dependence upon the Son of God who gave himself up for me. That is what we're talking about tonight in one verse. Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you been in the wilderness on a daily basis seeking to depend upon him and saying, not my life, don't put me in the center, but Christ's life in the center. Put the cross in the center, Father. That's a challenge. And you know what? That's why we have to gather the manna of Jesus. That's why we have to go to the cross of Jesus every day because I, by default, put myself in the middle and want everything working for me. That's my default. Now, if it's not your default, we need to crown you like the priest of the mountain because, yeah. Our default is centritis. And if we don't daily depend upon the life and love and giving the grace of Jesus, and if we don't put that in the center of our life so that we can then live the same way toward others, we will live as complaining, grumbling people. And that's contagious. Complaining is so contagious. It's a very, centeritis is a harsh condition because it spreads. Have you ever noticed that? Two people start grumbling about authority and leadership and then someone's like, yeah, you know what? I didn't think about that. You're right. Things could be a lot better around here. You know, the people who start that are the people who secretly wish they were in charge. That's all you got to see when you see that. You're seeing envy and jealousy. You're seeing I'm better than those people that are in charge. That's where the complaining comes from, centeritis. We have to learn to identify it so we stay away from it. Because Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that if we, we shouldn't grumble and complain because we shine like stars in the dark world. His point is that the world grumbles and complains. Well, if God's really in charge, but the Christians are supposed to show something different. It's daily dependence. So how do we keep the cross center? How do we do this? We do this every week, and we need to do this in our lives every day. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the body and blood of Jesus. Once a week's a lot. A lot of fellowships do it once a month. Once a week, 
we do this to remind ourselves that Jesus and his cross are the center of our universe. And we keep coming to it because we need to find ourselves orbiting around it. And I said daily, you don't literally need to like find grape juice every day and bread. And that's not the point. Communion is symbolic of our coming to Christ, the living bread. And if you do that in prayer, and if you do that in scripture on a daily basis, you are communing with the bread of life. We celebrate once a week that climatic symbol of this is it. And we remember how Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, said, do this often in remembrance of me. Because I know how often you will want to grumble and complain and suffer from, I know how often you will suffer from senoritis. So what happens when we come to the cross? What happens when we take communion? Side effects, common side effects are as follows. Humility. So if you don't like humility, stay away. Repentance. Surrender. Just some common side effects of coming to communion and coming to the cross. You might even experience purpose and mission, calling. If these are not for you, then communion and the cross is not for you. But if you come, how radically he can change the whole center and the whole orientation of your life. Now, if you desperately need in your life constant certainty, constant control, constant comfort, and constant credit from everybody around you, stay away from Jesus. Because he will challenge those fundamental needs to the core. So there are enormous side effects to this communion that battles senoritis. You have a choice. You're going to live with your condition or you're going to take the side effects and realize as you do, this is actually the life you're meant to live. It's not a side effect. It's only a side effect to the one who sits in the center of the universe. But if, you, if you're orbiting around Jesus and coming to him on a daily dependent basis, you realize, wow, humility is how I'm meant to live. Repentance is just a natural byproduct of seeing his amazing glory. Surrender because I want to be completely absorbed. Like Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith, daily dependence in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. So we're going to take communion as the worship team's coming up. And I know we do this every week, right? It's like, come on, weren't you going to have a better finish to your message? No. Sometimes we do it every week and we forget. We forget the power of this. We forget the symbol of it. We forget what it means. And so tonight was just a big, long reminder of why we take communion every week. But it's also a moment for us to check if we've been suffering from senoritis. And you know by your language, you know by your words, you know by the attitude of your heart, you know by your struggle or your neglect of depending upon Jesus on a daily basis. Only you can tell. Well, I'll be honest, I can tell too when you complain. But if you hide it, I can't tell. So I invite you to come to the Lord's table tonight to take the body and the blood of Jesus, to let his life poured out for us to come into us. 
and to imagine with me what would happen if we truly lived in daily dependence upon his giving for us, upon his life, and what it would then look like living in this wilderness. And when the hard times come, what would it then look like? We know that the hard times aren't worth complaining about because Jesus went to the hardest time with us. He went to the cross, not just for us, but with us. Because you're going to your own crosses throughout the week. And you have to know that Jesus went even that far with you. And as we come again, as we come to take communion, we have to recognize that it comes into us. These elements we eat and they come into us because we're taking the life of Christ and the, 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 the provision of Christ with us everywhere that we go. And we need to keep eating communion on a regular basis until we truly become what we eat. It's as if God is asking us to keep taking it until we finally get it.